today's passage, we're going to continue. It's a short one. Oh, the passage is short, not the, not the sermon. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. Just four, four verses. Mark chapter 6, verses 53 to 56. And the word of God reads, When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever, the, wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're looking at a much shorter passage in Mark's gospel, uh, much shorter than what we're used to unpackaging. Uh, but Lord, nonetheless, uh, it's you that speaks through your word. Uh, and so, Lord, we pray that as we enter into these four verses, that we would hear your voice, that this would not be a waste of time, but that we'd be able to come away from this Sabbath worship, having been spiritually fed, and having encountered you, knowing that we've heard your voice, Lord, we pray for wisdom as we unpackage these short verses, and we pray for humility, that we wouldn't take things for granted or assume that we know things, but to carefully examine the very depths of our hearts, to renounce anything that needs to be purged in our lives, to repent of what we need to repent of and to invite the Holy Spirit to transform the hardest areas of our heart that need shattering and conquering in the name of Jesus. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, so, last week, uh, one of the things I mentioned, if you were listening, was that, uh, I mentioned the importance of reading certain events of Jesus' ministry in harmony with the other Gospels. Uh, so we've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the synoptic Gospels, just like an like eyewitness account. And then John, which is a bit more of a spiritual Gospel. Even from John chapter 1, you'll notice it starts off a bit differently. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Uh, it's a bit more spiritual, but nonetheless, all four are kind of eyewitness accounts of what happened in the ministry of Jesus. And you'll find that as you read through all four Gospels. Now, just a quick disclaimer. I'm sure no one in this church has this problem. I had someone ask me. Um, they thought that the Gospels was four parts to Jesus' life. So part Matthew was about his birth. Mark was about it. Like, all four are eyewitness accounts of the full three-year ministry of Jesus. So the crucifixion occurs in all four. The resurrection occurs in all four. Um it's not part one, two, three, and four. They're four different eyewitness accounts. And because they're four different eyewitness accounts, they're going to cover some of them. Uh, they're going to cover the same event in multiple Gospels, if not all of them. Uh, we saw the feeding of the 5,000 uh, last week or the week, no, the week before. was actually covered in all four Gospel accounts. And the walking on the water was covered in Matthew, Mark, and John, if I remember right. Um, but I mentioned that when you have synonymous events like this, it's very important to read the different eyewitness accounts of the same event. Because you'll find it very helpful because they have different details and you can actually collage those details together to form the bigger picture. To kind of, you know, if you see an event, something happens and multiple people see it, you'll get different eyewitness accounts. They'll give you different details, different snapshots of what they saw. And you'll get a clearer picture if you collage those together. And this collaging process, it's what we call gospel harmonization, where we harmonize all the details of the event. Now, last week, we saw that the disciples were struggling out at sea. Uh, Jesus, if you remember, instructed them to get into the boat because they were about to take Jesus by force, make him king, and it was an emergency evacuation. Jesus tells his disciples, get into a boat, Travel into town, you go on ahead, I'll meet you there. But what 
should have been a 30-minute boat ride ends up being nine hours of them rowing. And while this is all going on, Jesus hikes up a mountain. And from the mountain, while watching over the disciples struggling for nine hours, he prays. He prays for his ministry. He prays for his disciples. And yes, you know, the apostles, they don't really get very far. Uh, they make it away from the shore. They make it, you know, they, they, they get a little bit into the water, but because of the mega winds, uh, they don't really make any headway. And last week we saw that Jesus, after praying for about nine hours in the fourth watch of the night, which was that window from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., in the middle of the night, Jesus comes down the mountain, walks onto the sea, defies the laws of gravity and physics, casually walks past their boat. Now, remember these guys had been rowing for nine hours. Uh, I would not be surprised if a couple of them had collapsed back into the boat out of exhaustion, uh, but they would have turned their head and seen the silhouette of a man just casually walking defying gravity, walking on the water past them. And so in terror, they think it's a ghost, which isn't unreasonable. What else could it be? But Jesus gives them words of encouragement, words of peace, and words of comfort, because he gives that threefold declaration. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And so in the midst of their terror, Jesus reveals himself to them, makes the declaration that he is divine, he is God. And that declaration is accompanied by a handful of miracles. The first one was that he's walking on water to show that he is the Lord of creation. To date, no one is able to walk on water without sinking. And then not only that, the moment he gets into the boat, the wind comes to a complete stop. Like not slowed down, but instantly comes to a stop. And this is where the gospel harmonization process that I mentioned earlier comes in. Because something else happens that's not in Mark's gospel. Um, if you read through John's gospel, he covers the same event. But something else happens. Because in Mark's gospel, in verse 53, it says that when they'd crossed over, or after Jesus gets into the boat, when they'd crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. So, in Mark's gospel, he records the miracle of walking on water, the wind stopping instantly as soon as Jesus gets in the boat. But then verse 53 says that after he got onto the boat, they eventually made it to Gennesaret. And um, there's nothing unusual there. You know, gets in the boat, and then they start making the journey. Because the wind stopped, they're able to row to Gennesaret. But there's actually more to it. Because there is another miracle that occurs after Jesus gets into the boat. And it's not mentioned in Mark's gospel, but it's mentioned in John's gospel. Because remember, remember where they are. They're in a place called Bethsaida. And if you have a look at your New Testament map in your Bible, Bethsaida was in the northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And they end up at Gennesaret, which is in the far west. So there's a giant circle, circular sea. Northeast, my northeast, is Gennesaret. Uh, sorry. Bethsaida, and on the complete, almost the complete opposite side of the sea is Gennesaret, where they eventually end up. Uh, but what's so remarkable about that? What's remarkable is the way John describes how they got there. Because in John chapter 6, verse 21, it says that then they were glad to take him into the boat. So, you know, Jesus gets into the boat, as he does in John's, uh, Mark's gospel. But then John says, after he got into the boat, immediately, Immediately, the boat was at the land to which they were going. John records that the moment Jesus gets into the boat, immediately they were at their destination. The Greek word is eutheos, and a closer, closer translation to eutheos is probably the word instantly. And it's a term, eutheos, that's used throughout the New Testament, and it's used to describe healing a lot of the time. Matthew 8.3. Jesus stretched when he's, you know, he's healing a, lep a leper. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean and eutheos. Immediately, the leprosy was cleansed. It was instant. Matthew 20, 34. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. He's hitting blind people. Touched their eyes and what? 
Eutheos. Immediately, instantly, they recovered their sight and followed him. And so this term, immediately, it's not a term that means gradually or over the course of time, and it's not even like quickly. When John says that immediately they arrived, he's talking about an instant teleportation. And so try to picture this in your mind, like everything that the disciple went, disciples went through in the last week or so that we've looked at Mark. It's pitch black. 3 a.m., between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. Oh, 3 a.m. for any horror buffs is when, apparently when demons and ghosts come up the most. I don't know if that's true. Anyway. Um, but nonetheless, it's pitch black. 3 a.m. The disciples had been rowing since 6 p.m. No progress. Jesus suddenly appears, looking like a ghost, walking in the water next to them. The disciples think he's a ghost, terrified of him. And so in response, Jesus reveals himself to his disciples as the what? The ego I am, the great I am, the I am who I am, that Jesus, uh, God refers to himself in the Exodus. The miracle of walking on water affirms his divine declaration that he's God. You know, he's the Lord of creation, that's why he can walk on water. So it proves that he's God. And not only that, he demonstrates his lordship over creation by stopping the wind the moment he gets on the boat. But then we find that Jesus is also the Lord of time, space, and matter. Because somehow, instantly, they teleport. They're on the complete opposite end of the sea. They haven't made it that far out from Bethsaida. And suddenly, the moment Jesus gets in the boat, they're on the other side. Now, Gedeseret, uh, if you have a look at your maps, it's close to a place called Capernaum. And if you remember our earlier sermon series, Capernaum is where Jesus' ministry headquarters were. Uh, it's where Peter's home was. Um, and it was from around that region, that earlier in Mark's gospel. If you remember the mega crowds that followed Jesus around? You know, you know that, that Jesus fan club that kept following him around everywhere that he went. You know, they went to Peter's house, they crowded Peter's house. And, you know, this crowd that almost physically crushed Jesus to death. Uh, it was probably from around this region where those people came from. And even when Jesus fed the 5,000, that miracle of feeding the 5,000, a huge chunk of that group would have actually come from this Capernaum, Gennesaret region. And so the people, you know, they're, they're on the shore of Gennesaret. They see this boat come ashore. They see people get out of the boat. And verses 54 and 55 tell us that these people of Gennesaret recognized the men coming out of the boat because it reads and when they got out of the boat the people immediately recognized him and then what did they do they ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever, wherever they heard that he was so these people see a group of men landing on their shores they think it's jesus they're not sure yet it looks like jesus from a distance they're like could it be it is it's jesus it's his apostles. But how do they react when they see him? Like, how did they react in the past? Whenever they saw Jesus in the past, they swarmed him. They, they, like the, the Jesus fan club swarmed him. They tried to touch him, talk to him, ask him questions. They all wanted a piece of Jesus. They almost crush him in the process. But strangely, that's not how they react this time. Because they see Jesus. And their reaction probably would have been a bizarre sight to the apostles. Because how do they react? Think about it from the apostles' perspective. They've just teleported to Gennesaret. They've gotten out of the boat. They see a huge group of people on the shore. And they hear them mumbling, is it, is it Jesus? It is Jesus! And they probably would have expected this swarm to rush up to them. But they don't. They rush in the opposite direction. They're like, hey guys, it's Jesus and the apostles. And then they run away from the apostles. And they probably would have wondered, what's going on? Why are they running away? Why aren't they coming to us? Why are they running from us? But they find out eventually what's going on. Because these guys, after seeing Jesus, after recognizing it's Jesus and the apostles, instead of running to Jesus, they run from Jesus into town to do what? to grab all of their sick 
and incapacitated friends. Friends that are lacking in the ability to move, that have no mobility, and they carry, they don't just carry their friends out, they carry the entire bed that their friends are lying on. So they're carrying these beds out and their friends are lying on it. And they're bringing them out to wherever they hear that Jesus is. So they might have been walking out into town. They, they hear someone say, oh, Jesus is over there. So they carry the entire bed with their friends still lying on it to where they think Jesus is. And so uh, as the apostles head into town, verse 56 says, and wherever he came, wherever Jesus came, as he you know, walked through Gennesaret and that region, in villages, cities, or the countryside, they, the people that saw Jesus, laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched him were made well. I think a lot of things would have felt strange for the apostles uh, in today's passage. And I think what they witnessed in this verse probably would have been unusual as well. Imagine going to your local shopping center and seeing that all the public walking areas is just covered with beds. Beds, an entire sea of beds with sick people, incapacitated people, lying everywhere. Like imagine next time you go to your local Westfield or, you know, I don't know, I think you guys hang out at Strathfield or like go to Strathfield Plaza and seeing everywhere there's just beds. Like you want to go buy a kebab, but it's just beds. You you can't even make your way to the local kebab shop because it's just beds and sick people everywhere. Like an entire hospital ward just laid out in Strathfield Plaza. A sick person. And not just a sick person, he's bed. Like they carry the, not just, you, anyways, yeah. So they carry the bed out. And then not only that, to make things more crowded, there's the sick person, there's their bed, and then next to their bed is their group of friends, the friends that carried them out. And all of their friends, as Jesus is trying to squeeze his way through, the friends are imploring Jesus. The ESV uses that word, imploring Jesus. And they're imploring him for the opportunity for their sick friends who can't move, can't get out of bed, to just touch the hem of his garments or the fringe of his garments. And this word implore in the ESV, I like the ESV translation, but I don't think it does justice uh, to what's being conveyed here. Implored. This verb has a sense of desperation behind it. Begging probably would be a more accurate rendition, but even begging doesn't do justice to the, the degree of desperation because the Greek, we're going to learn a lot of Greek uh, in the coming weeks. The Greek word is uh, parekalun, parekalun. And the Greek word, it's a word that's used in the New Testament when demons beg Jesus for mercy, not to kill them. For demons to beg Jesus in the context of life and death and it's with this same level, this same degree of desperation that these friends beg Jesus to heal their mate who's sick, lying in the bed. And it's not even a healing. Just begging them for the opportunity to touch, just brush their hand against the hem of his garment as he walks past. Now, what, what is this garment? Was it just a jacket like I'm wearing now? Uh, probably not. This garment was actually what's called a prayer shawl. Uh, if you ever see Jewish rabbis or like Orthodox Jews, you'll find that they like wearing wide-brimmed hats and they've got the jerry curls um, and they wear like black jackets and overcoats. But then you'll find this, this scarf with tassels on it that they wear around their necks. And it was actually a piece of clothing, this scarf that was instituted in the Old Testament. And it's a, it's a scarf, a prayer shawl that had great significance, still has great significance to the Jews. Uh, in Numbers 15, uh, verses 37 to 41, uh, it says that the Lord, this is where it's inst instituted, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel on each corner. And in uh, and it shall be a tassel for you to look at 
and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. It's, a, it's, a, it's not just any scarf. It's got such a great significance to it. And if you remember last week, I mentioned that there's so many allusions to the Old Testament in Mark chapter 6. Uh, so many allusions, particularly to Moses and the whole journey, the Exodus. Because uh, if you remember, there was the wilderness. And in the wilderness, you know, Moses, God fed uh, God's people through, God, sorry, God fed his people by sending manna from heaven. And in the same way, Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish and fed the 5,000. Jesus, well, Moses rather, goes up the mountain to encounter God. Jesus goes up the mountain to pray to God. Uh, and so there's these illusions. And, you know, some people might say it's a coincidence, nothing more than a coincidence. Uh, but I think the fact that this prayer shawl is mentioned as well kind of removes, from, for me, any doubt that this is a coincidence. Um, the allusions to Moses is quite deliberate. Because if you read throughout the New Testament, you find, particularly in Hebrews, uh, you'll find that the author of Hebrews makes a deliberate effort, effort to explain that Moses was great. You know, To the Jews, Moses is one of the greatest prophets. So Moses is great, but then Hebrews says, if Moses is great, Jesus is better. Like It, it alludes to all these Old Testament figures that if these guys were great, Jesus is even better. Uh, and so bearing all this in mind, like the, the Old Testament significance, the significance of the tassels, um, the people that touched the tassels, you know, this tassel, like I mentioned, signified many things. But I think the ultimate significance was in that final verse that I, I read out to you from Numbers, where God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. Anyone notice why? He repeats that phrase, I am the Lord your God. I am. Where have we seen that recently? We saw that last week in the threefold declaration that Jesus gives to the apostles when they're terrified because they think they see a ghost. He says, take heart. It is I, ego I me, I am who I am, do not be afraid. Jesus used that I am who I am phrase that God gave to Moses in the Exodus. And so whether or not all of this was going through the minds of the sick people as they touched Jesus, uh, probably not. They were probably too sick to think about stuff like that. Uh, but I, I still think it's pretty cool to be aware of. Um, that there's so many allusions to the Old Testament. It's scriptures, everything's just linked together and it's all pointing to Jesus. But nonetheless, they touch him. They touch the tassels. And the moment they touch Jesus' scarf, they're all made well. Their bodies are restored. And that's how today's passage ends. Short passage, uh, probably not a short sermon. We've still got a bit to go. But what can we take away from these short four verses? Uh, the first observation I want to make, and I've made it before, um, it's that God uses human agents to build his kingdom. God uses human agents, human people, sinful, fallen, flawed people to build his kingdom. You know, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus begins and engages in what would be a three-year ministry. Starts it at 30, dies at 33. And it's a ministry that would end, you know, it wouldn't just end at the cross, but it would find its climax in the resurrection, and then Jesus would ascend into heaven. And Jesus promises that after his ascension, even though he'd physically be, be gone, he's going to send to his church and his people a helper to empower them for the work of ministry. And then if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that that helper on the day of Pentecost is none other than the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune Godhead. Now, the purpose of this empowerment was for the building of the kingdom. Now, in our minds, maybe it's because of our pride, 
Whenever we see something being done, we have this tendency to think, I could have done it better. Or we think, oh, this could have been a bit more efficient if we did it this way. And I think it's, it's tempting to think that way about God because Christ didn't have to ascend. He could have just stayed. And I think who better to establish God's kingdom than the king himself? The divine, perfect God-man that is capable of walking on water, capable of stopping the wind, capable of casting out demons, capable of healing people and raising people from the dead. You'd think it'd be much more quicker and efficient if Jesus stayed, wouldn't you? But for whatever reason, in God's infinite wisdom, he has chosen to use flawed, sinful human agents to demonstrate his power and his glory to this fallen world. We saw it a few We see it through the series of Marks. Oh, sorry, not Marks. Mark. There's only one, one book of Mark. And if you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that the, the apostles and even the early church, they're not very intelligent. They're a bit dumb. Um, they're a bit unintelligent, a bit dopey. But as dumb as we might think that they are, these are the people that God's commissioned. These are the people that Jesus handpicked and said, yes, these guys, these, these are the guys. These are the guys that's going to build my eternal kingdom. He gets them to attend a short-term mission trip. These dopey apostles preach God's word. And they're empowered to exercise authority over the kingdom of darkness. But even today, God's plan, even if we don't understand it, even if we think there is a better way, God's plan, even today and until the day he returns, is to continue using flawed, sinful human agents to build his kingdom. See, the people in today's passage, uh, they looked at Jesus when he landed on shore. There was a bit of an unusual reaction where they run away from him instead of to him. But we find that they become human agents of God's kingdom. Because they might not fully understand you know, they didn't get to encounter that threefold declaration, the ego I me. They don't understand yet that Jesus is God, but they've seen enough to know what Jesus is capable of. And so they run into town because they know people in their lives that need Jesus' help. And so running from Jesus, they swarm into town, they grab the sick wherever they can, they carry their beds out. And they bring them to wherever Jesus went, into the marketplace. They take their friends and bring them, physically carrying the bed as well, to a place where they're sure that their friends will be able to have an encounter with the risen, or oh, not the risen Jesus yet, but King Jesus. And not only that, not only do they create an opportunity for their friend to meet Jesus, what do they do? They implore. Pare Kalun. This desperate begging. Which in today's context would translate to intercessory prayer. Where you pray on behalf of others with a desperate heart of love. These men that saw Jesus on the shores of Gennesaret. They were human agents used by God. They weren't perfect. They didn't have a perfect knowledge of God. But this has always been the pattern of God's people in the New Testament and throughout Christian history. People whose lives, they're not perfect. They're not sinless. They've got countless flaws. And yet God somehow uses them, transforms them by allowing them to have an encounter with Jesus and then uses them to bring other people to have and share in that same encounter. In the 21st century, we are those human agents 
And this isn't limited to leadership. It's not limited to the VT team or the stream leaders. It's not limited to people that go to Bible college or pastoral ministry. It's followers of God. That's all you need to qualify to be a human agent in God's kingdom, to be a follower of Jesus. And if you are a follower of Jesus, we need to carefully and prayerfully look at the world around us and recognize in the depths of our heart their need of Jesus. I'm, I'm very into politics, world politics, and I like to compare governments and cultures from around the world. But the Western world at the moment, it's crazy. It's insanity, everything that's going on in the world. Like, since the beginning of time, we have understood, even if you're not a follower of God, we have understood that man is born male or female. Well, humanity is born male or female. And it's only in the Western part of the world that we're saying, no, actually, there's like there's limitless genders. We need to create toilets to match whatever gender you are. This is insanity. And this is a world, the Western world is so messed up. And now, more than at any point in human history, it needs Christ. Sin has taken root in the Western world in a way that in, I'm 37 years old. I've never seen anything like this in my entire life. Like I heard the other day that they're trying to include in the, it's now 2SLGBTIQ+, 2S, 2Spirit. They're trying to include a new acronym, MAPS, Minor Attracted Persons, Pedophiles. They're trying to normalize this. It's insane. This is a world that needs Jesus more than ever because instead of trying to make war against evil, they're bent on making peace with it. And not just making peace with it, but celebrating it. And the spiritual battlefield that is waging war around us, it is intensifying and ramping up and we can't be blind to it. Evil throughout history has spiraled deeper and deeper. But God's answer remains the same. That's Christ. Man only needs Christ. Man is restored through Christ. Civilizations are healed through Christ. But the way people are exposed to Christ is through the human agents that God raises in every generation. So, point number one, it's a bit long. God uses human agents to build his kingdom. Everyone that follows Jesus. Point number two, your service matters. What we learn from today's passage and even scripture as a whole is that no one is called to be a passive believer. Uh, no one. No one's called to just simply come to church and just attend the service and go home and that's it. That's your Christ. That's the limit, limitations of your service to the kingdom. Uh, no one's called to be a passive believer. In today's passage, Jesus lands on the shores of Gennesaret, and when the people swarmed into town, it wasn't that some of them went to get their friends and some of them went home because they felt that they weren't called to serve. But they understood. Every single person that saw Jesus understood that it was their responsibility to bring their friend, to create an opportunity for their friend to encounter Jesus. They understood that it was their responsibility to implore and intercede and beg Jesus that they might be able to touch him. Even if we look to the New Testament epistles, we understand that God bestows on all of his people. No one is excluded. All of his people, God bestows spiritual gifts for us to exercise in the service of God's kingdom. Collectively, we form the body of Christ according to Corinthians. And for each one of us, no matter how big or little or you know, how great or insignificant we think our spiritual gifts are, our service according to scripture 
matters. In the context of today's passage, just to give you a bit of perspective, how tragic would it have been if out of the group of men that saw Jesus on the shore, that ran into town, how tragic would it have been if half of them went home? If some of them thought, my service does not matter. What a tragic story it would have been if there was a sick man in Gennesaret that wanted to experience an encounter with Jesus, but because their friends weren't willing to serve them, that they were stuck at home forever, never being able to touch even the hem of Jesus' garments. In the same way, if you think about it, we have a very, very limited time to serve this king. You know, I'm, 30, I'm turning 37 very soon. But 37 to most of you is quite old. To some of you, it's still pretty young, I hope. Um, but from my dad's side of the family, on average... My uncles have not lived past 60. My dad's probably, my dad's 70. He's the one guy that made it out of his 60s. So if that statistic is anything to go by, that means that half my life is gone already. I'm 37. That means I have less than half a lifetime to identify my spiritual giftings and exercise it to love and serve those around me so that my service will matter and I will be able to create ripples in the eternal salvation of the people around me. Recognizing that I am a human agent in this kingdom that God is building and that in following Jesus, that I'm called not just as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus to serve my church, my family, and my community. Your service matters. And if you think about it, when we enter into that side of eternity, you know, we know, we anticipate those words from the king when we enter into the throne room, when we stand before the judgment seat of God, we want those words, well done, good and faithful servant. It is stupidity to think that we can expect those words, well done, good and faithful servant, when we don't want to live the life of a servant. When all we want is to be served, how can we possibly expect to be referred to as a good and faithful servant? Your servant matters. Finally, your love matters. I'm almost at the end. I know this is a bit of a long sermon, but I spent uh, a majority of my time in youth ministry, uh, year 7 to 12. I think every church I've served at, I think here they divided. Uh, back then, it was just didn't have the resources to pay for two pastors, so I was in charge of the whole thing. Um, and doing youth ministry, I'm sure the teachers can relate. Uh, sometimes it feels like you're doing the work of a missionary. And I say that because, you know, the older you get, the harder it becomes to culturally connect with younger high school students. Because uh, the culture that they grew up, experiencing is very different to the culture that I grew up experiencing. The challenges they face are unlike anything that I ever faced. Um, even their mannerisms and the words they use, I learned, I visited a com group on a CG group on Friday, and I learned what the word riz means. You guys know what riz means? Riz apparently means charisma, like how charismatic a person is. Riz, yeah. Um, and spill the tea, apparently that's an old one. Spill the tea means like share the gossip. And so, Whilst I could prepare a sermon and a Bible study, I can do that. I found it harder and harder to connect with my high school students. And even harder than that was that, you know, we'd hold these evangelistic events where the students would bring their friends to church. You know, we'd organize a games night. We'd get everyone, have activities together. We'd eat like awesome, like kids, kids. Awesome food to kids is pizza and macas. But we'd eat food, and then we'd praise. I'd give a short, you know, five-minute talk. It was very, very textbook. And the kids, the friends that don't go to church, that, you know, our congregants would bring to church, I wouldn't see them again 
until the next evangelistic event the following year. And I wondered, how can I get them to keep coming to church? I struggled to connect with my high school students. How on earth am I going to connect with their friends? And over the years, I realized that the most powerful way for me to reach their friends wasn't me. It was my congregants. The students that attended, the students that live in their world, are the most powerful human agents that God could use to reach their friends. Because from a missional perspective, who knows their culture best? Them. Who understands the challenges that they go through best? Them. Who understands their matters? I can't keep up with these new terms. That Apparently, Thebes is like outdated now. I can't keep up with all of this. But who can understand it best? Them. And who can understand them as a person best? Them. And finally, who can love them the best? It's them. Even in today's passage, the people of Gennesaret saw Christ and they recognized it was on them to bring their sick and helpless friends to Christ. And one thing I thought about as I was preparing this sermon, I like just meditate, just trying to visualize what it was like to just be a person in that passage. And I tried to imagine the sick people that got carried out on their beds as they touched Jesus' garment as he walked past, felt their body physically being restored in a way that they'd never experienced before. Not like gradually, but remember, instantly. They would have seen the love and compassion of the great Ego Aimi, King Jesus, as he walked past. They would have felt his love and compassion because he demonstrated it so many times. But I couldn't help but think as I was meditating on this passage that the love that they understood, the love and compassion that they understood Jesus had for them, how much more would it have been magnified because of the love and sacrifice that their friends had demonstrated? Because who does that? Who carries someone on their, like my wife after we got married, she said, can you carry me? And I tried, my back nearly gave up. Like not, not because she's heavy, because I'm weak. But who does that? Who carries someone on their bed to the local shopping center. And I think as transforming as that encounter with Jesus was for these sick people, I think the friendship, the, the, the depth of the friendship that was forged as they watched their friends carry them to Jesus, they'll never forget that. That this human agent of God's kingdom was faithful and obedient to the cause. And in the same way, I have a role to play. Your VT team leaders, your stream leaders have a role to play. But sometimes the greatest means by which our friends in this fallen world will see the love of Christ is not so much through my preaching. It's not so much through great teaching, even though it's important. But often the most powerful way they'll get a taste of God's love is through your love for them. Why? Because your love matters. You know, there's an old story. I can't remember. I've got a really bad memory the older I get. So I can't remember if I shared this illustration previously. And I apologize if I did. But there is a traditional story about the Apostle John. Uh, if you don't know, the Apostle John, out of the 12 apostles, he was the last one to die. Uh, he was the one that died in his old age. And in his old age, because he was the last surviving apostle, uh, the early church, early church used to carry him out on their Sabbath day worship. You know, like, you know, two or three guys would just lift him up, and he was like a frail old man, just weathered, his body beaten with all the suffering that he's had to endure for Jesus. And this frail old man would get carried out to the front of the church and they wanted the Apostle John, the scripture that, you know, the one that scripture describes, you know, the one that Jesus loved, to share a sermon. 
to share a word of hope with them. And so they'd carry him out to the front and the congregation would wait in anticipation. And John would say, love one another. Love one another. And then he'd signal for the guys to carry him back. So like, okay, that's like short, 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 not quantity, uh, quality, not quantity. And then they'd carry him back. And then the following week, like, all right, let's get bring John out. Hopefully he'll give us something else this time. Carry him out to the front of the church. And then he'd look, love one another, signal, carry him back. This happened a third and a fourth week until someone stood up and was like, can't you tell us, some, tell us something new? We know this. Tell us something. Why aren't you telling us some? Like, you're the guy that hung out with Jesus. You know more about Jesus than anyone. Tell us something. Why do you keep telling us to love one another? And the Apostle John, according to tradition, has it. He responds by saying, Because, my son, if you get this right, everything else is going to fall into place. Your love matters. Are you sensitive when people around you are hurting? Are you sensitive in recognizing when there's someone that has a need? Then my encouragement to you guys and to myself as well is to recognize that as human agents, that we have a responsibility that one of the most powerful ways that we can allow this person to encounter Christ and get a taste of Jesus' love for them is in our love and our service of them. And this is why I keep like a broken record. I harp on on the importance of CG groups. If you're not enrolled, sign up. Because it's critical, not just to FLM, but just for the foundation of any church. Because it's one thing to love and serve a person, But in the context of a CG group, you're able to live life with people. Walk alongside. You can know what's going on in their life. And if you hang out with them long enough, you can tell when something's on their mind. You can tell when something's bothering them. My prayer is that as the community of the CG groups grow, that you'll make it a culture and a habit to be able to open up and share with each other as you walk on this journey with Jesus together as a family. Because your love matters, your service matters, and we are the human agents that God has chosen to build this kingdom. And on that note, let's go into a time of prayer, a bit of reflection. Uh, I know that this passage, as I was preparing this sermon, uh, I found myself multiple times in a place of repentance. Uh, times when I realized I hadn't prayed enough about a certain thing or a certain person. Um, And so in this time, let's ask the Spirit of God to awaken our hearts so that we can recognize the calling to which God has brought us to. That this idea that I'm just coming to church to be served rather than to serve. It's a contradiction of what God's decreed for his church. And so if we have been in that place, let's take a time to repent and lay that down before God and ask him for a heart of service, a heart of sacrifice, a heart that is sensitive to the lives of people around us. So that through our interactions with them, that they might be able to get a taste of the love of God. So let's spend a bit of time in repentance and praying for our hearts so that we we can assume that role that God's called us to of being human agents, builders of his kingdom. Let's pray.
Father, you've revealed to all of us, including myself, during the preparation of this sermon, a humbling message. Father, let us never take your kingdom for granted or the advancement of your kingdom for granted. Yes, your scripture does teach that you are sovereign, that your kingdom will be fulfilled despite our imperfections, but that is no excuse for apathy. And so, Lord, you have decreed that human agents empowered by the Holy Spirit will build your kingdom, and as your followers, as lovers of Christ, we pray for an empowering of the Holy Spirit to be able to assume this role. To understand that we are called to sacrifice for the people around us. To love them and to serve them. That we are to intercede for them. And Lord, some of us might not recognize what our spiritual giftings are yet. But Lord, I pray for all of us that despite what it is, that we would joyfully be able to exercise in gratitude these gifts for the advancement of your glory, especially in this part, this western part of the world that we live in, that hates the truth of your word, that scoffs and mocks the name of our king, that we would understand the landscape of the battlefield that we are living in and that we would take up arms, equip ourselves with the armor of God and engage in spiritual warfare through a life of love, service and sacrifice. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.